In this podcast, Christopher Bishop, a rock star and a futurist, uses his crystal ball of knowledge to talk about future of work and jobs. So, stay tuned. So, welcome everyone to episode of Jobs of Future. And I couldn't have asked for a better guest. He he actually cares about jobs of future, and and soon we'll we'll all see and learn. And welcome every uh, welcome to Christopher Bishop. Uh, a brief bio. So he has had many different careers uh, since he graduated from Bennington College with BA in German Literature. He has worked as a touring rock musician. So we have a rock star. So I always wanted to interview rock star. That's helpful. Uh, played with Robert Palmer, uh, jingle producer, sang on the first Kit Kat jingle. Give me a, oh wow, that's a surprise, nice. And website project manager, developer, Johnson and Johnson's first corporate website. Chris has also spent 15 years at IBM in a variety of roles, including business strategy consultant and communication executive, driving social media adoption and use of virtual worlds. Chris is a member of the World's Future Society and gave a talk at their annual conference in Washington, D.C. last summer on how to succeed on jobs that don't exist yet. In addition, he's on the board of TEDx Times Square and gave a talk on openness at the New York event in April uh, 2013. Chris writes, consults and speaks about improvising careers at universities, industry conferences. With that, welcome so much, Chris. Uh, coming on our podcast. Thank you, Vishal. I'm delighted to be here. Look forward to our conversation. This is this is fascinating. So uh, I'm now I'm so excited. At the same point, I'm I'm uh, uh, sort of <laughs> shivering that I'm talking to a rock star. So I should better behave. So um, uh, why don't you walk us through through your uh, your journey to the current role? Yeah. So I. Um... I get a good place to begin is, is Bennington College. So I went to a small liberal arts school in Vermont where you had to define your education. You had to uh, put together a plan for what you were going to learn and how you were going to learn it and then defend it in front of uh, like a tribunal, um, sort of like the way, you know, PhD dissertation, not nearly that robust, but, but that kind of model because they expected you to own your own learning uh, experience. And I, I've taken that model and, and applied it over the past 45 years to navigate successfully through, uh, I think, seven careers so far. I'm working on number eight right now, mm-hmm. you know, from being touring mm-hmm. rock musician to you know, ending up at IBM. Um, I think the, one of the key takeaways, again, back to the Bennington model, is being able to learn, unlearn, and relearn, identify skills gaps, and figure out how to address them. Uh, and do that over and over and over again. And I think that's the exciting thing is that that's sort of the model for today's learners, right? So um, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics says they're going to have eight to ten jobs by the time they're 38. So the way to succeed in that new model is to be able to recognize what's coming and what you're going to have to learn to be successful in these new career models and and then do it again and do it again. Interesting. Interesting. That's that's pretty cool. So, and and, and walk us what are you doing nowadays? Like, what's what's your current gig like? Well, so after my 15 years at IBM, I e-tired using <laughs> IBM big, <laughs> big blue parlance, right? Um, about five years ago, and I've been working as a futurist and as a speaker and a writer. Uh, I do lots of different things. I have sort of uh, the other sort of 
current work model is uh, tied to the gig economy, right, and being a contingent worker. So I have uh, half a dozen projects going on at any given time. Um, as I was saying before, I'm, I'm coming up to Boston in a couple of weeks to speak at an artificial intelligence conference at the Harvard Club. Um, I just did a report on cybersecurity for the Institute for the Future based in Palo Alto. Uh, they hire me as a researcher and writer. I do a lot of freelance uh, writing for a tech PR firm based in San Francisco mm. called Bird Factory. Um, I'm speaking, again, at the World Future Society event in August. I run what I call Future Career Invention Workshops. I was just at the Texas STEAM Summit in Houston uh, in mid-January talking to teachers about future jobs and how it ties to curriculum uh, and project-based cross-discipline learning, how they need to rethink what they teach and how they teach. So that's, that's, well, there's some of the things I'm doing. Interesting. Wow. So I think yeah. when, when I was, I was looking at your, at your profile, I was fascinated with, uh, with the, the, the diversity of, of your experiences, right. And then, and then how open and how, uh, up, uh, front you are in sharing those experiences and, and, and definitely helping us understand the future of work and future of, future of jobs. So, Sorry, somebody's calling. Sorry about okay. that. It's okay. So I definitely want to have no, uh, have your perspective on among your interactions that that you are talking today and talking you are talking at very futuristic conferences, uh, talking about future of work, with talking about uh, intelligence of AI technology in 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 in, in reshaping tomorrow's tomorrow's op- like workforce. What are some of the some of the anxieties are you seeing um, as an as as an as an ob- passive observer or maybe active observer when you talk to these conferences and meet people? What are some of the anxieties if, if you can share? Like anxieties, are people, what people are anxious about? Yeah. Well, I think it's, um, I think it's always good to take a step back. People are you know they're apprehensive about technology taking away jobs, hmm. which is certainly understandable. But again, uh, when I talk about this and write about it. Uh, I think it's good to keep in mind that this is a process that's been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Mm. Right? Technology has been disrupting work models uh, in various ways you know, for a long, long time. And then we need to sort of keep that in mind, keep that perspective when we're thinking about the way technology is going to disrupt uh, the job economy. One of my favorite books, we're, we're going to talk about books maybe more later, but a book that I used to reference when I was working at IBM is called Technological Revolutions in Financial Capital. Mm. It's written by a Cambridge professor, a woman named Carlotta Perez. And in it, she describes five cycles, uh, beginning with an innovative uh, discovery, some sort of crash and or rationalization, and then a period of incorporation or standardization. Mm. So that's gone on since she begins with uh, the sort of the revolution in uh, textile manufacturing in England in the uh, you know, in the early uh, 18th century. But she talks about, and the cycle, she says, they, she gauges them as 40 to 60 years on average. But she talks about, you know, textiles and then uh, railroads and then oil and uh, the transformation of the automobile. Um, she And then the information age, you know, that we're in now. And we're moving sort of from the information age into this yet uh, new era. And in fact, I think the, the uh, scientists have given it a new name, right? The new anthropological uh, time frame. But it's, you know, we're in the age of sort of AI 
and robotics and algorithms and, and biotech, if you will, transhumanism. So it's a it's sort of the next era. But all my way of saying that there are these patterns that we can look back on and learn from about how jobs transform and morph and evolve. I think it's exciting. So whenever I hear about uh, this idea of, hey, AI will take away job and everything, right? So it, it it reminds me of a story. So when um, when when they when they were pretty coming up with cars, right? They they used to have these carts, and cars somehow used to use more lumber than the carts. And there was a whole gungo about, hey, the, we'll be out of forest soon. Uh, the world will end. How, like it'll be a, it'll be a massive trouble and problem. And I think as you rightly pointing out, it's just times and again, it's just it just it 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 keeps on happening to us, and we just fall on that track of no, there, like, there's other world that we have not seen yet, which is pretty, pretty cool. And, and actually, one, yeah, of yeah. The, one of the things that, that, that I talked to, I remember I talking to someone that, hey, talk to this, um, the, one of the best futurists I have ever seen called Donald Rumsfeld. So, so, he, so he, I said, he just said one of the best things that you can ever imagine, that his talk about known, known, known unknowns and, and unknown unknowns, I said, whatever you read today, whatever you think or, or anyone come up with or any pundit come up with, it's all known, known and known unknowns. And world has right. been evol- evolving around unknown unknowns that we have no clue on. So, and that yeah. has been shaping us since then. So, But I, I think, um, again, sort of the, just to share an anecdote with you about how I sort of came to this revelation. When I, um, when I moved to New York, I moved to New York after this band broke up. I did three albums with this band, McKendry Spring, right after college. Uh, moved to New York, figured I'd see if I could run with the big dogs. Like, could I cut it, you know, in the heart of the beast and actually make a living as a musician? And knock on wood, <laughs> I, I lived in Manhattan for 16 years and, and was successful as a bass player and then a composer and arranger. But um, along about the mid-'80s in New York, technology began to take over the music business. You could mm. sample, digitally mm. sample sounds and then store them on a Winchester drive, which was a big uh, like uh, hard disk that slid into a rack. Like 512K was the maximum limit. Um, so I realized that I couldn't really make a living as a bass player mm. per se. I need to adapt to this new model. So I learned how to sample and sequence, basically compose on a computer. I bought a Mac. Um, and, 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 you know, began working as a musician using my skills, uh, that I knew how to play and, uh, and, and move that into adopting new technology so that I could actually, you know, make a living using skills that I had and, and incorporating them into this new work model, if you will. And so looking back historically, I, I think of examples that we can point to throughout history, like when. Henry Ford started cranking out Model Ts in Detroit in 1910. All those farriers and blacksmiths got really nervous. Right. Like, what are, what are we going to do now, you know? Um, but the smart ones became auto mechanics, hmm. right? As the carriage trade went away, they adapted their skills to this new job economy and new model and, uh, and were successful. Interesting. So, that's, that's fascinating, by the way. So... You said you are a futurist, right? What is like what it takes to be a futurist? Like what what all what are the ingredients of futurist? If if I may ask. <laughs> well, I think you have to be um, excited and have a sense of wonder about what's coming, right? Mm. Uh, you know what's what's going to happen on the planet from a 
social, cultural, technological, societal perspective. And, uh, and I am. I'm interested in, in what's come. I've always been kind of interested in new stuff, new things. Um, that's just kind of how I'm, I'm gated, you know. Uh, when I was a musician, I had the first Steinberger bass. Uh, it was made out of carbon graphite, made by an industrial designer. Um, I ran a Synclavier, which was the state-of-the-art digital musical instrument in New York in the early 90s, right? I was captivated by the web, so I learned how to be a web producer because I thought, well, this will have sort of global social cultural impact and it allow me to be employed, and I was interested in, in, the, in the topic. So that's sort of how I became a futurist. I think also you need to be aware of what has come before, right? Be able to take a step back, get big picture perspective. Like I was talking to a guy, I was actually in a meeting in New York this week with a guy who's sort of an AI guy and he's a designer and uh, somewhat of a futurist and talks about technology and its implications for um, for culture and business. And we talked about where we begin when we talk about AI. Mm. Right? <clears throat> the starting point is ENIAC, the first sort of electronic computer that was at the University of Pennsylvania right in the 40s, I guess 1946 maybe. And the difference between him and me, because I'm a futurist, the the place I begin is the Antikythera mechanism. Mm. You know what that is? No. It's a device that was found off the coast of an island uh, in the Aegean Sea, like a Greek island, right? And it was created. They're not sure when and who created it, but it was. It's about um, probably dates to 500 BC. Mm. And it's a device, a very complex mechanical device used to help humans solve problems. That's the mm. that's the context mm. for me. And it had like a series of gears and toothed wheels, and it could monitor and manage the uh, orbits of the planets, four planets closest to the sun. It mm. could map uh, the, the four-year cycles of Olympics. Um, it it tracks solar eclipses. It was like a wooden and brass box, you know, like two feet square. So anyway, that's that's sort of the futurist perspective is like, where are we in the arc of history, you know, and where are we going to be? And and so and, and what's your, what's your crystal ball in this? Like what how how do you how do you get your your cap of wisdom um, on what's next? Well, so I think there are a lot of tools that that uh, we can use now. And you know, being in the age of digital communication, you know, access to information is is easy with a click of a mm-hmm. mouse. Uh, you can get to all kinds of data. So, I mean, I look at lots of different sources. Certainly, uh, I look at the elite newspapers. I mean, I read the the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. I also look at MIT Technology Review, a fascinating magazine that's talking about tech trending. I watch BBC Click, which is a TV show where they have weekly episodes looking at what's trending in tech and culture. Um, I read the Silicon Valley Business Journal, which shows kind of where VC money is going and who got funded and who did and who's a unicorn today and who's out of business tomorrow, who got bought. Um, I look at patent filings. I look at regulatory conversations. Um, so it's a, it's a wide range of sources for you know, what's trending in business and culture. And then the indicators are, you know, what the jobs are going to be that are going to be tied to that, that trending. Interesting. Wow. Wow. And and one more thing I, I want to ask about you. So that's what's fascinating to uh, to me was you have written you are non-linear multimodal uh, careerist or, or something like that. Yeah. First, <laughs> right, what yeah. is that? 
and 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 then what it takes because i think so in 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 our career like so having transitioned maybe once or twice or thrice is like too much and you have been you have you have done your seventh move and now you're on to your eighth one like what is walk us through that like how what are through that cycle because because we'll be seeing a lot more of these because the very fact yeah. of your that element makes you a, a, a fantabulous futurist so yes if you can walk us through that well i would say that the thing that um the thing i'm most excited about in my current roles of career number eight as a, as a career futurist or whatever is uh sharing my perspective with today's learners and you know, whatever age they are, as I mentioned before, I, I've uh, spoken to everything from seventh grade career classes to senior executives at uh, outplacement firms thinking about, you know, what the new job economy is and how they can how they can participate and be successful. So that's kind of what I've done is taken my uh, seven careers and codified how I navigated through them and I'm putting together guidance uh, around how today's learners can be successful. Again, the criteria are, you know, Bureau of Labor Statistics says today's learners are going to have eight to 10 jobs by the time they're 38. Um, 85% of the jobs they're going to do haven't been invented yet. That number varies, but that's a general kind of parameter. Uh, they're going to be using technology that doesn't exist today. Uh, they're going to, you know, it's going to make things like this mm. look archaic, you know, like, you know, our grandkids are going to say, you mean you had to carry something around in your pocket to, like, to communicate and interact and get data? And, and they're going to be using this technology to solve problems we don't yet know are problems. And it, it you know, segues into sort of the power of AI, just a little sidebar, but I think the advancements in technology and AI and robotics are going to help us humans solve problems that have been in the realm of science fiction that have been intractable to date. But things like addressing cancer and food security and climate management and sustainable energy. So, so I'm excited to sort of share my insight and perspective, you know, with today's give them uh, give them ideas and also get them excited. It's gonna be it's gonna be cool. You know, we're gonna do really cool, interesting stuff. Interesting. It's gonna have global impact that we never were able to do before without this technology. That, that no, that that's fascinating. So. Um, one thing that 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 um, I hear a lot about uh, from businesses. So uh, I was recently talking to. So I'm advising one of the school in coming up with a data analytics program for 18 months. The moment I hear about 18 months for any particular program, I I get this gasp of air coming out of my ears. That hey, really? Like 18 months? You can you can you predict that whatever you're teaching will exist? Um, and and it's just, now flipping on uh, on the side of a business. Business had the same anxiety as well. Like every day, they want to cope up for for hundreds and hundreds of years of existence, and when every day is a new day for them, like what are some of your thoughts on how how these businesses and individuals could cope up with this yeah. this rapid change? Yeah. So I um, I remember having a conversation recently with a millennial who works at IBM, a, a woman that I know, and she was describing her current sort of model as. Uh, when she describes what she does to people at a cocktail party, whatever, she says, well, I, I work in social media at a global 50 company during the day, and then uh, at night I'm a, a DJ, and then on the weekends I'm a seamstress. I design and, and make clothing, you know. 
Um, and I think that's sort of a typical model that people, you know, as I described, you know, my multiple roles too. It's like people don't have one job and work you know, eight to five every day for 30 years. I mean, those days are gone. That model mm. is gone. So uh, from a company perspective, I think they need to keep in mind a couple of things. One is that the typical tenure now, uh, you know, in any company, certainly large companies, like 18 months to three years. Right, so that's. I think of the. You've got to realize that going in. When you hire somebody, no matter if they're top talent, I mean, you might try to entice them to stay. And there are ways to navigate through large companies and do lots of different things. I mean, I did lots of different things at IBM, so it is possible. But I think the general premise you have to keep in mind is that people you hire are not going to direct your company for a long time. So you want to. You want to train them. You want to encourage them to be creative. You want to give them opportunities to grow. Um, but you also have to be ready for them to leave. And there's a great quote, I think, Richard Branson, like describing sort of the learning challenge that companies face today. And it's just sort of two, two ideas. One is, you know, what if we train them and they leave? And the other flip mm -hmm. side is, what if we don't train them and they stay? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the model. So, so what I would say to employers, and HR people, uh, and even line of business execs, is you want to get them to inculcate your culture so that when they do leave, they'll think fondly of you. So when they leave and go to a partner or start a company you want to buy or go work out in the supply chain or become a journalist or an analyst or whatever, you want them to think of your company in a, in a good light. You know, oh, yeah, I worked at Company X and they treated me well. So when the RFP comes in or the offer to buy the company or whatever, uh, they'll go, yeah, let's give them a shot. Let's, uh, you know, let's engage them. They uh, treated me well and uh, they're worthy of consideration. So that's what I would say at a macro level to, to HR people. No, I think so. Um, you you gave a very fascinating uh, thought, right? So. We, we, we did we did a survey um, at, at our company sort of talking about uh, um, the future of work and then we realized that um, so one of the very in, uh, interesting insight was that future would not be needing chefs but they it would be needing souppreneurs and sandwichpreneurs and all that right so you are pretty much watching on the same thing that they will be gig they will be working uh, four or five jobs in a day um, to keep them keep them excited about about work. Now yeah. that side is beautiful for 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 me, like who wants to sort of spend my maximum time creating more as much value as I can. But imagine the 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 situation for a restaurant that's relying on a lot of sandwichpreneurs and souppreneurs working in in coherence to get a get a feel or experience for us. How difficult of a challenge is is, is this for a business to sort of think of uh, living in this gig economy, so called? Well, I think uh, you make a good point. I mean, I think there are certain certain roles that will never be that flexible. I mean, you want a doctor in an emergency room to be there when the patients come in off the street. You want an airline pilot to show up and get ready to fly the plane, uh, you know, when you need someone to take you from point A to point B. Um, so there, you know, there are going to be roles that, that will not be uh, adapting to this sort of gig economy contingent worker model. But I think, in general, you want to encourage people to be entrepreneurs within your company. So I, I've been running something I call Future Career Invention Workshops, a little pitch mm -hmm. here, so forgive me. Indulge my, uh, my um, description of this program. But mm -hmm. what we do is 
point to companies and we work with employees to think about what their future job might be at that company based on, uh, you know, skills that they had that maybe are not being exploited or uh, other team members that, they, that a collaboration, with whom a collaboration might generate some, some new and exciting uh, role. The other thing we do is we talk about encouraging employees to think about a company that they would create that their parent company would want to buy, right, based on white space or a, a gap, interacting with customers. What are customers telling them that they, they would like to see or what are competitors doing? Mm. So, again, keeping, keeping it in-house, getting companies to think about encouraging entrepreneurial spirit within their company to help them grow and lead and innovate. Interesting, interesting. So, one one area sort of that that I, I find really fascinating in, in 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 today's ecosystem and 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 maybe 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 I'm I'm also paranoid about that that vertical as well. The same time, so HR right, so HR is very close to a corporate culture, right? They define culture, they they enforce culture, they and when when you talk about the entire ecosystem of future of work or the work or gig or task, how it's evolving yeah. every day, right? Now these HR is in the forefront of somehow this battle of this rapidly shift, shifting world, rapidly shifting requirements for workers, and yeah. then they have to protect and 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 preserve the idea of culture, the idea of that what they what they represent, what the so how would they come at peace with this two sort of very di- uh, sort of uh, different thoughts or different worlds now emerging faster than they could they could cope up like what are some of the things that that they could do or, or what are your thoughts on on that well so i think um with all due respect i think hr is going to be uh is going to be transformed right it's gonna it's gonna morph because i think it's historical role in uh protecting the business and protecting executives is delivering less value than um that it has I think uh, it's being incorporated more and more into marketing as as marketing becomes uh, the lines blur between internal and external marketing. You know, you're marketing to customers, you're marketing to employ marketing to employees. Employees are customers. I think um, to a large degree in smart companies, HR is being subsumed or uh, collaborating with marketing. I think eventually it probably will go away. And um, it'll be much more closely tied to the business. So I'm a firm believer in Tom Malone's philosophy. Tom Malone is an MIT professor who wrote a seminal book called The Future of Work. And he postulates that in the next decade or so, companies will consist of uh, a small number of people with core skills around, say, strategy, marketing, operations. uh, And the rest of the business will be run via a network. So it'll be so much more movies are made, right? So people will come together based on skill sets. There'll be a quote-unquote director or producer, which will be sort of the parent company, if you will. And they'll do whatever is required, whether it's designing and building a battleship or writing a bunch of AI code or um, conjuring some new product launch. Uh, And they'll do the project, however long it takes, and then they'll disband and the teams will go on to do other things at other places. There'll be sort of this core set of uh, resources that kind of run the main business. But the days of like HR monitoring and scrutinizing and hiring and recruiting and um, and, and firing people is, is going to go away. 
think in the, in the next decade, if not sooner, is already happening. Mm. I mean, as the contingent workforce and the gig economy model takes over, HR doesn't really have a role in that space. Interesting, interesting. So when you talk about HR and you talk about transformation, right? So, and, and, and you're pointing out that uh, definitely it's, a, it's, it's, it's inevitable and it's, fast, it's coming faster than, than anyone likes. So all I, all I hear about is like borderless uh, sort of uh, uh, yeah. when, it, when it comes to either uh, their perception of a company or whether it, it, it means as a, as a learner or as, as an employee, as a future employee dealing with that company i don't know where the border and, and how to like so how would that 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 new new landscape uh would work like because right now my honesty or or my sort of loyalty it's toward that culture right it's toward it's because skills come and go skill change we all grow into skills but i yeah. became loyal to the message that the company was solving and and the culture is built around that message or whatever that that thing is What's your perspective on uh, on how would uh, someone be able to form a, a a company and HR could be able to recruit those guys when 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 everything is like gig and and, and conceptual? Well, I think it's again as you know, social media plays a larger and larger role, right? I mean, sites like Glassdoor, where you can go on the web and see what people think of the company and what they think about working there and. Uh, the level of transparency around uh, employees' perspective on the work that gets done and the culture and how it's supported, the level of uh, benefits, uh, the kind of training that's offered, uh, the behavior of the CEO, the C-suite. I mean, it's all, you know, more and more it's available. I mean, sites like the Muse, again, that mm. cater to millennial employees. I mean, uh, the days of keeping the culture sort of hidden or as a black box are over. So... I think culture is becoming, you know, business culture is becoming uh, a much broader uh, perspective than it has been. I mean, you could used to be able to say that sort of IBM had a culture or maybe uh, Aetna Insurance had a culture or um, the New York Controller's Office had a culture. But nowadays, you know, as the world is flat and we're all becoming digital citizens, culture is around how do you treat your employees, what are the benefits, mm -hmm. opportunities. What's your record of corporate social responsibility? Are you doing good in the world? Uh, is your technology uh, enabling people to do good things, or is it causing kids to jump out of windows at Foxconn? They're you know the people making iPhones. They're living in like uh, barracks or whatever. So I, I, again, HR's role is uh, is going to be minimalized because people can see what companies do and and they can interact. They can. Follow the company on Twitter. They can look at Glassdoor. They can look at Facebook pages. So I think companies need to be aware of how they represent themselves, you know, more broadly on the planet. Interesting, interesting. So I think one thing that that, that I think about. So I'm I'm coming from the technology angle in, in, into this equation, right? So as a technologist, yeah. like, I'm, what keeps me up at night is like having more reliance to do your business on technology, right? So, because if, 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 you, if you look in the past, so there are two things when you do, want to do a business. There's the art of doing business and then science of doing business, right? So art of doing business is, okay, so that's the, the culture, that's the hack that you figured out you're exploiting and sort of making or creating a value and, 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 and sort of leveraging that. And the science is pretty much like how you operationalize it, how you use technology to deliver uh, the value quickly, faster, cheaper, right? 
So now, yeah. if 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 we talk about um, and and to me, HR is that vertical that um, secure the art somehow, right? So now with this now, this new new advent of uh, when technology is out there, uh, transparency is at its maximum. How would a business can keep up, say, these uh, cultural nuggets? Because if you if 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 we set a bar at um, uh, my employee should be happy or how I take care of them, the AI can quickly scan over and this competency would be available to everyone under the sun who can use that AI, right? Now, what's the core competency for the business would be? So what, what, what's, what's your, your thought and take on that? Well, I think at the end of the day, I mean, to your point, you've, you've got to be creating and delivering value, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what, um, that's what drives a culture, uh, you know, at its core. Like, what is a company doing that's contributing to, uh, to business and to culture and, and, the, and the planet, you know? And, and certainly companies have different perspectives on how to do that and what the values are. And, um, and they, you know, they vary widely. I mean, some companies have very niche kinds of approaches. I mean, I think of a company like LinkedIn that's very much mm-hmm. into promoting like an open um, culture, you know, that, that embraces kind of diversity. And I mean, their mission is to match skills with opportunity at a, at a massive, you know, global scale. Um, you know, other companies are focused on innovating in, in niche kinds of areas. And I think the thing I found about Silicon Valley, for example, um, I spent some time out there over the past few years just uh, at events and listening to people talk and meeting with executives. And uh, the thing that I found fascinating is that they, and this is simplistic, but generally they have a big picture, long-term strategic global perspective on mm. what they're doing. And I think that's a, that's a, an approach that millennials certainly embrace and that really yeah. we should all embrace. I mean, uh, they're not just cranking out products and selling stuff uh, to make money. They're, they're, they have a, a bigger picture perspective. Now, you know, they're monopolies to some degree, but I'm encouraged by companies like Google, for example, has a whole Google X portfolio where they're putting money into moonshots, things that don't mm-hmm. translate directly to attributable revenue may never do that. Mm. Uh, that may be spun off like Waymo, autonomous vehicles, right? That's now a business unit that's uh, mm. more focused on generating some some revenue. But uh, it's great that they have the money and that they have the vision to do those kinds of things. I think that's that's exciting. Interesting. And and how do you anticipate the workplace? Uh, what, what would be that, right? So in, in this emerging world, uh, what would happen to the, the future of workplace? Well, I think it's going to be a it's going to be a hybrid model. We're already seeing it evolving, right? I mean, you know, when I worked at IBM, uh, you know, 20 years ago, it, there were cubicles. I had a cubicle mm-hmm. on uh, Madison and 57th Street. Um, I think we're going to see more and more, obviously, virtual work, right? Um, you know, if you can get online now, you, you're at work. So whether you're in Starbucks or on a train or in a bus or in your car, if it's an autonomous vehicle, being driven by somebody or uh, you know, the Google buses that drive people from downtown San Francisco down to the South Bay. Mm. Um, we're going to see tools like AR and VR really transform how people work. I mean, a lot of people sitting at a desk. I mean, here I am. Mm. I got my house and my computer. And mm. So it'll, it'll be, you know, hybrids. But 
the ability of technology to transform how we interact and collaborate and, and uh, solve problems is going to be exciting. Again, I was just at an AR conference at the MIT Media Lab a few weeks ago, and people, companies like Meta, demonstrating headsets and mm. the whole of Microsoft, you know, you can res out a browser and res out a whiteboard and res out a spreadsheet and share it with anybody on the planet and work on it together. And, uh, and there'll still be a need for, you know, carbon-based life forms getting together in a room in a physical space, but we're going to have expanded opportunities uh, to, to interact and, and work together. Interesting. Leverage yeah. Fascinating. So, by the way, uh, and thank you for so much for sharing your perspective on that. So, if if I'm a business, right, how can I future-proof myself? Like, what are some of the things that you could suggest me as a business that I could do to ensure I exist tomorrow? Well, so you've got to be aware of your portfolio, right? What do you, you know, how are you delivering value? Um, so, look at your competitors. Use your market intelligence, business intelligence. Uh, even if you're an old company or a new company, it's at the end of the day, Day, customers pay for what they think delivers mm. value. So, um, and I would encourage companies to to work with employees and with competitors, competitors, whatever. Work with unlikely partners, people in the supply chain, whomever, to, to innovate, to get ahead of the curve in terms of what the market will will support, what the market will reimburse you for. And in terms of employees, I would. Hire employees or work with contingent workers, gig economy workers. Mm. Don't necessarily follow the guidelines and historical job recs. I, you know, I would say if the person aligns with 50% of your job rec and has a bunch of other skills that maybe don't, don't aren't listed in, you know, what the person who was in that job did before, I would hire them and, and encourage them and give them, give them rope, give them you know, give them air cover from a P&L if you need to, whatever. Mm. I, mean, I think it was funny about this sort of state insurance company that had an intern, a young woman doing social media for them one summer. Mm. Um, and she did really great stuff and they loved her work and they they offered her a job, like come fall or whatever, and she she turned it down. I'm like, well, why did you turn it down? She's like, well, you have no social media strategy tied to uh, attributable revenue, like it's not in your business strategy. So why would I work here? I mean, that's you're obviously not getting it. Mm. So my my response to those execs would be: you should have given her, you should have hired her, given her a mm. VP position, hired a team for her, given her a big budget, and walk away and let her like do her thing. The reason I was saying at IBM, if you want something. Uh, gun that's, that's bleeding edge. You got to find people who don't know it's supposed to be hard. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, very relevant. Uh, I think it's it's it's, it's very well crafted, and then certainly even I, I I could use that as well. So now yeah. let's 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 go on the other side of of the spectrum, uh, the people part, right? So if I want to be future proof, what are some of the yeah. thoughts that that I uh, you could suggest me doing? So I would say, again, I have these sort of three secret ingredients. I call them um, voice, antenna, and mesh. Uh, so I'll go into that a little bit. A little bit, again, back to pitching my worldview. But the voice thing is like figuring out what you do that no one else can do. Right? What is your unique skill set based on you know what you've done your whole life or what you've studied or jobs you've had or whatever? 
Um, you know, what is it that makes you unique? And, and there are ways to figure that out. There are all kinds of online assessment tools. And, but I think just sitting down and sort of listing out, like if someone said to you, oh, yeah, Chris Bishop, he's a great whatever. They might say, mm. well, he's a great player. He's a great communicator. He's a good writer. He's obviously a technology guy. He's a futurist. So that's kind of my four or five criteria. So each person should be doing that and knowing that it's going to change and morph, but that it's a core set of skills that you have. You know, we all come in, into the world kind of wired to a certain degree, being able to do certain things. Mm. And I still not play the bass. I, I, mm. I've been doing it years, but it's something that I was drawn to and then I continue to do. So that's a starting point. The second piece of this is around antenna. So looking at what's going on on the planet from a business, a cultural, a technological, a political, a social perspective, and seeing how that translates to mapping your value into that you know, evolving model. So like for me, you know, being a bass player in New York, I realized I couldn't really just play electric bass and make a living, but technology was going to allow me with computers and samplers and sequencers to take the music skills and adopt the new technology and be successful in this new model. So that's, you know, that's at a, at a very specific level. That's how you can think about taking skills and looking what's going on on the planet. So where would you work in AI? I'm sorry, if I was speaking to like millennials in the workplace or Gen Z in college, mm. like, you know, where would you take your skills or your passion and apply it to robotics or to biotech or to sustainable energy or to space travel? Right, where would where would that work? And then the third part of it is mesh, which is sort of Venn diagram, the network of networks. Where do you mm. intersect, and who can help you be successful? Looking at the antenna findings and mapping your voice to it, you know who you need to meet that can help you do it. And like I, my mesh includes musicians, it includes people from IBM, it includes you know college friends, it includes people in the futurist community. Um, and, you know, and people in academia. So I sort of map those and figure out how to connect those dots and, and be successful. That's what I've been doing. Interesting. And, and, um, you talked about, um, I think we were talking before, before the interview about how do you figure out the trends to predict the future of work or where the future of work is going? Like if, could you walk us through some of those, like what, if I want to see the sense of where the industry is going for me, or at least uh, as, as a business or as a, as, as a professional, like what are some of the, some of the places I can look at? Yeah. So I would say, again, there are sort of meta tools and they're more specific tools. So like if you're interested in um, investing in financial, uh, you know, have a financial services perspective, mm. that's what you're passionate about, you have skills in. I would say there are sources you should track down, like websites like AngelList or print and web publications like Silicon Valley Business Journal. Um, I would look at Bloomberg Technology and see kind of where the money is going, right? That's, a lot of that is very visible and you see you know, what companies are getting funded because the indication, right, the implication is that somebody thinks there's a pony in there. You can make some money if you invest in this company. Um, if you're, you know, figure out, again, if you're interested in, say, doing good like, um, or social causes or civic tech, uh, you know, look at companies that are doing things that are focused uh, in those areas. There are a lot of successful entrepreneurs now um, that are taking their money and rather than buying a boat or America's Cup yacht like Larry Ellison, 
are starting companies that are focused on doing good and solving you know big problems. I mean, look at what Bill and Melinda Gates are doing at their foundation. Track down people in those kinds of organizations uh, to see what they're doing and how your skills might be applied to deliver value to to, to an organization. Interesting. So, um, let's talk about some of the things that that you that you find fascinating or you're worried about the future. So, what are some some things that you are you are hopeful about uh, when it comes to the future of work or future of jobs? Well, I'm certainly excited about the potential to transform education mm-hmm. with technology um, because that's where it kind of begins. You know, you, we we need to get mm-hmm. like elementary school kids thinking about the fact that they're going to do jobs that don't exist now and that their parents are going to scratch their heads and go, you're going to do what? Mm-hmm. You're going to be a, a robotic ethicist uh, consultant for the uh, pharmaceutical industry? I mean, uh, how is that going to work? So, Interesting. Um, and then we need to get teachers thinking about what they're going to teach and how they're going to prepare kids. Now, I think education is a challenging space because they don't have a P&L. Um, and they kind of, you know, some teachers think of themselves as teaching for the ages. Mm-hmm. And some of that is good, but there's a great book, uh, Fareed Zakari, in defense of a liberal education. I think that's where uh, learners need to focus, is having a broad-based uh, set of, uh, you know, uh, influences. So studying humanities, study Greek literature, study, um, you know, astrophysics, whatever. Because again, the the people that the pe- companies like Google hire have broad based um, backgrounds and experience, right? Mm. They they uh, there's a great interview with Laszlo Bach, the former uh, chief people officer at Google. He's now left to go to a startup. But mm. uh, Thomas Friedman, the New York Times uh, op-ed writer and author, right, author of The World Is Flat, uh, interviewed him, and and they described. What does it take to work at Google? And they focus on things like being a creative problem solver, being resourceful and resilient, being comfortable with ambiguity, being able to work across disciplines, being able to understand your role as a global citizen, and being able to uh, work in this emergent leadership model, articulate a perspective clearly and quickly, but being able to acquiesce and go with a better solution or a different solution if it gets to end of job and solves the problem that team is trying to solve. Expertise was like the last thing on his list. Now that said, there are legions of coders at Google, you know, writing code and doing the latest updates to search and Google Docs and Gmail or whatever. But at a, at a meta level, the stuff that's going to drive the company forward are people with those kinds of skills. Mm. Right? Interesting. So, Interesting. So if, if we talk, so by the way, thank you so much, uh, Chris. You like fascinating perspective. Uh, definitely love to know. So now let's let's get on you uh, for for a few minutes. So if if we talk about you and your journey so far, what are some of the some of the ingredients for your success? If you can share, like what are some of the things that really helped you stay sane throughout the years through the seven journeys or now on eighth one, and then and yeah. then helping us all understand the future. So what are some what, yeah, walk us through that. Well, I think, again, you know, kids today, whomever in the sort of global borderless workplace that we find ourselves in in the 21st century, right, uh, you need to be prepared to learn, unlearn, and relearn, sort of where we started this conversation, right, where the podcast began with Bennington College. 
like figuring out what you need to know, figure out what you want to do mm. and figure out what you need to know and then figure out how to learn it and learning it and doing that again and again. So for me, again, when I moved to New York to work as a freelance bass player, um, I really didn't know. How, there were a couple of things I needed to learn how to do. One was learn how to sight read well mm. and learn how to bebop tunes, how to work with a fake book or a real book. And I was in a couple of sessions where I got my butt kicked because I didn't know how to do those things. So I was like, hmm, if I'm going to work in New York City with these guys and gals, I better learn how to do that. So I, I went to a, a music school and learned how to sight read, took classes and attended uh, sessions and whatever. And I tracked down a friend of mine from college who knew how to play bebop and, and he showed me how to work with a real book and how to improvise over changes and and uh, learn sort of the the attendant set of standards that you need to learn to be, so if someone calls a tune you know it you know we're going to do all of me ready and mm. f count it off here we go um so you know those kinds of lessons um i've done that over and over working as a web producer working in social media working in virtual worlds working in business strategy at ibm like what's the gap being able to candidly and honestly assess what the delta is mm. and then figure out how to how to address it interesting let's talk about your favorite read um do you have a favorite read that you can share with with with, with our viewers and listeners well i'm i'm a big fan of um economist which may sound surprising but rashir sharma wrote a book called breakout nations mm. a few years ago he's got a book too which i want to pick up but at the end of the day, it's business, right? We're talking about future jobs. It's about business. So he's a, he's like a forgive me, this is inaccurate. He's like a McKinsey, like a senior McKinsey consultant. But he writes about trending in business and economies. He wrote about the BRIC countries and then the Stivitz, the next generation of emerging markets where businesses will grow, right? Based on skill and labor arbitrage and uh, rules and regulatory issues, how easy it is to start and run a business there or for a multinational to set up a business there. Um, so that's that's a book I like. Uh, Industries of the Future by Alec Ross is a great mm. book. Right? He was a policy wonk. He worked for um, Hillary Clinton in the Ooh. State Department when she was there. Um, the book, That book I showed you, The New Rules of Work, I think mm. is a fascinating by Kate Minshew. Um, the woman who uh, started the website, The Muse, sort of aimed at millennials, mm. writing a social-based job portal. Um, and I read, I'm reading, uh, I read Disrupted, the book by Dan Lyon about his mm. years uh, at HubSpot. That's a pretty funny book. That's that's Although nice kind Because of, I spent a year at Proxycom, which is like a sort of systems integrator posing as a full-service internet company. I left IBM for a year, was recruited at the height of the dot-com bubble and worked there. Um, I knew on the first day that it was the, a bad move. And I, mm. lucky, I was able to go back to, to IBM. But I mean, that's a funny book, uh, insight into like a middle-aged guy mm. from a traditional journalism background going to work at a, at a startup, you know, digital marketing company. Um, the Da Vinci uh, biography is out. Uh, I, I'm reading that. Stephen Johnson, How We Got to Now, is a fascinating book. He has a, a six categories, uh, a sort of game-changing technologies, glass, uh, cold, 
Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting book. Big picture, big picture perspective on again mm-hmm. technology that disrupted uh, the global economy, and certainly the implication is you know jobs that were and industries that were tied to them. So those are a few. Anyway, that's beautiful. Uh, thank you so much, and that brings us to the the close of the of the interview. So we ask all of our guests uh, about their closing remark uh, that they could share with with our viewers and listeners. What's yeah. your closing remark? So I would say, as you mentioned before, I mean a lot of kids are sort of apprehensive and depressed and anxious about you know what's going to happen in the future of work. But I would say, take a deep breath and be excited about it because you're going to do stuff that's going to look like magic to me. So get to it. I mean, there are opportunities to to work, but more broadly transform businesses and even more broadly transform culture and society in ways that have never been possible before by leveraging technologies like AI and robotics and algorithms and uh, transhumanism and biotech and on and on. Areas where you're going to be able to innovate and create new stuff that didn't exist, again, at the intersection of say, disciplines that haven't historically connected in areas like medicine, like nanopharmacy, mm. you know, mechanical engineering at the, at the um, you know, micro level, the nano level, and pharmacology at the atomic or molecular level. I mean, you're going to do stuff in sustainable energy, um, certainly in healthcare, in education, um, in business writ large, using virtual and augmented uh, uh, reality tools to interact. Um, traveling in space, space tourism is a big, Big business, right? Um, mining rare earth minerals on the moon—that's uh, that's the next area of exploitation. Uh, Elon Musk, you know, put his Tesla Roadster on a journey to Mars. He's talking about building a colony on the red planet within 10 to 20 years. Um, so it's it, there's really interesting, exciting stuff, jobs that are out there to, uh, that you can do. So. I'd say get out there and, and start exploring, start creating, start innovating, start working. That's <laughs> that's fascinating, Chris. I think with that, that's that's a very, very nice uh, uh, thought for, for our listeners and viewers. Thank you so much uh, for being so generous uh, with, with your time and, and helping us understand um, what the future of work would look like uh, and how the business and uh, as a professional, what, what companies and, and professionals could do to survive in that. You're always welcome on the show. I, I know you're, you're one of the book is uh, uh, in queue. So once it, it gets baked, uh, definitely want to have you over. Um, and okay. thank you so well, much. Thanks for the opportunity. It's been great talking with you. I appreciate Likewise. it. Yeah, I just, I just, uh, I just, I just, I just, I just, I thought I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick. Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick. I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here. Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it. Then I go into the booth feeling nervous. Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless. Is the mic gone? I don't know how to work this. Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on this.